0: episode of Inside the Recording Studio, I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Halstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing very well, Jody. How are you? I'm doing pretty darn good, too. I'm not going to complain.
1: Good, good. Yes. Uh, we were just talking a little bit about... Last week's episode here, yes. um, before we started rolling here, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. So we are not talking about Charlie. Today, we're going to do another name drop here. Well, <laughs> you're doing a name drop. What is it? I mentioned these two brothers, the Lord Algae brothers, Tom and Chris, mm-hmm. a lot on yes, this podcast. Do. Because I'm a big fan of their work and what they do. Today, I thought it would be a good episode to bring up five things that we could all kind of learn from them. Mm -hmm. in the way that they tend to mix in their workflow. I think it's also good to point out that even if you don't like the kind of music that they tend to do or they're sort of associated with, you still probably like the way that their albums sound. So it's one of those things that where you can, again, and I'm going to stick the landing here because this is something that I heard Charlie Clouser say one time. (laughs) And uh, he said, I can like how it is without liking what it is. Exactly. So if you're in that camp, this episode is probably still for you, and hopefully you'll learn something from it. I'm in that camp, and I hope I learned something today. Okay, so you're telling me I'm going to do most of the talking here today? (laughs) No, I'm not telling you that. (laughs) All right. To start off here, the first thing that I learned, and this was pretty early on in my sort of journey of, of trying to get decent at this mixing thing, Uh was uh, neither one of the brothers are afraid of doing drastic EQ moves (gasps) if the track calls for it. Mm -hmm. When I started out, and I think for other people as well, I was like, that's a big no-no. No, 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 you shouldn't boost more than a couple of dB or or cut more than a couple of dB, or all these rules where it's like, no, you should only use subtractive EQ or whatever. Absolute nonsense, right? So I agree. It is absolute nonsense. Yeah. How long did it take you to discover that? That you could do drastic EQ moves? Yeah, and nobody ends up
0: dying. Five right? minutes?
1: <laughs> I don't No, know. but I mean, I'm, you know, but seriously,
0: is that something that you were conservative with initially? That's hard to say. I started out on a Tascam Porta 1, and I know yeah, and then, with the oh. EQs that they have built into that thing, I don't know what exactly what the boost and cut amounts are and what their curves were, but I do know that I use those rather generously.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, you kind of have to, to make anything sound good on a task. Uh, of handle, course. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but it, when you got in the box then, right? Cause, yes. But when you started using plugins and things, were you hesitant to let's say, have like a 10 dB boost at 8K, or were you not concerned with that?
0: Did you ever have a period where you were trying not to do that? I definitely had a period where I tried not to do that. Had more to do with getting the sound correct on the way in as a recording engineer rather than a mix engineer. However, I'm not sure I was ever super concerned about the amount of EQ pushing in either direction that I've ever done. I know that there are points where it was like, does this really work this way? I'm not sure I'm doing this right. Which became more of the recording end of things of trying to get it right there.
1: Yeah, there is that. That's still the biggest thing, I think. You should try to get it as right as you can. Should your track need a lot of EQing, don't be afraid to do that. Exactly.
0: Speaking of which, as we have mentioned over the last month or two of various episodes where I'm remixing old catalog. Yeah. I just did a mix yesterday that I finished, and I mentioned it as we were talking about this. (laughs) this You sure did? (laughs) That I did do an EQ move on a certain frequency that was well above 3 dB of move. It was closer to 8 dB. But that's what it needed, and yeah. I just did it, so right? bang. It's like, hey, look at that. It sounds
1: cool now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Now, a, bit, a little bit of a caveat to making drastic EQ moves, though, I, I would say, at least for myself, and I'm probably not that unique, so probably others as well, mm-hmm. is that you need to kind of get to a point when your ear is relatively dialed in. Until we really learn what to listen for and how to listen really, it can be really exciting just to – I'm just going to boost 8K on everything and it sounds super exciting. But you end up like really frying your mix, right? Because like why am I so fatigued listening to this? Well, I did that recently old. as
0: well. I had yeah. too much going on at the 2700 mark mm-hmm. and realized, hey, I need to dial that shit back across – multiple instruments (laughs) yeah so i was realizing that i was too tired at one point on a particular mix like i need to take a break and go away and come back and realize oh that there was too much 2700 there and i had to dial it back a bit
1: we've all done that too so Mm -hmm. so breaks are good the second point that i want to go into here with the brothers is something that both you and i advocate for as well and I think this is a healthy thing to do when you see other people do it, not just you and I, waffling mm-hmm. on about it on the podcast. It's consolidation of tracks before you start mixing. You mentioned somebody today, we were chatting here before we started recording,
0: that was really proud of mixing a song with an excessive track count. Yeah, somebody on social media had mentioned he had done over like 315 tracks in his latest and greatest song that he was releasing and wanted to know if people thought that that was too many. And of course, you get half the internet going, why? And the other half going, congratulations, in a sense, or dude, that's too many. Or what the fuck are you doing? My response to it was, it has more to do with the arrangement and how well that arrangement works for the number of tracks that you have going. Sure.
1: But we can all say that this guy is the reigning world champion of track counts, <laughs> <or> at least <laughs> for, for this week, right? Well be, yeah. No, but it, it, in all seriousness, I, it really comes down to having a manageable mix. Mm-hmm. So if you have what was it, 375 tracks, <laughs> right? It, managing that becomes a extremely unwieldy. That's ridiculous. It is pretty. 375. You could have that at recording stage. Sometimes you got to start dumping stuff down, right? If you're doing like a huge orchestral thing, maybe that's one thing, right? But you still consolidate. Even if you're doing like a pop or a rock mix or whatever, Mm -hmm. consolidating your tracks before you start mixing makes it a lot more manageable. What I've seen... Chris do a lot is what he calls like handoffs. If he has, for example, several stereo synth tracks that Uh are going through the song, and one is playing only in the intro, the other one is playing only in the verse, and then the third comes in in the choruses, what he will do is bounce all of those stereo tracks down to just one keyboard track. Uh without really losing any control of levels and things, right? So now you have a much more manageable, so instead of having like six or eight synth tracks, now you just have a stereo pair. Mm -hmm. So that would be an example of doing something that just makes it more manageable instead of just having excessive counts. And those little changes add up, right? If you have something that is 100 tracks plus, now you can whittle that down to maybe half of that or probably even less, right? And now it's a lot more manageable mix and you're probably going to end up with a better result. That would be the hope. That would be the hope. Now, as a tip, and this was something that I thought was a little bit surprising, but Mm -hmm. I can see why he does it, is when you have a double-tracked guitar, Mm -hmm. generally spread hard left and hard right, just to give that big sort of distorted guitar generally, he will, instead of having two separate ones, he will consolidate those into one stereo pair. Right. I'm assuming it would be the same if there's the same part being played, just a slightly different sound, set up a balance for those, and again, consolidate down to that. Yeah. That's something I generally don't do. And I know you don't do, but you have— Not often. It, right. Because you have a different reason for not doing it because the way you tend to deal with
0: yeah, tracks, I yeah. don't work the same way as they do with the, or at least the one who does his stereo pairs like that, where it's center, left, right. I believe that's the only three places he puts things. I don't do that. Case in point, recent song mix I'm working on, I had the verse guitars, which were doubled, panned in Pro Tools style panning at 40 left, 40 right, right when they hit the chorus, they go 100 left, 100 right. They needed to have a bit of movement as they moved through a section that happens between the verse and the chorus. And to make it feel like it was opening up, I did a pan automation from 40 L to 100 L and a pan automation from 40 R to 100 R. And it sounds cool as it opens up like that. That's Something I tend to do more often than not. If there are guitars multi tracked, and a lot of stuff I've worked on in the past has that, where in the verses they're not nearly as wide because otherwise there's no change in the scenery, so to speak, if everything's always hard left, hard right in your stereo spectrum. And there's a lot of place to play around in there, and it gives you more room to me to do things at odd values, not just center, left, right. I get the concept of center, left, right from a mono standpoint, which you still need to check your mixes in. It's
1: definitely one of those things that if you have the workflow or your producer cap on when you like to do that, Mm -hmm. then that style of like bouncing down to a stereo track is just gonna cause more problems. It does. Then Unless you automate that as you do your pass, but then that opens up a whole other can of worms, right? Yes. But I thought it was an interesting point because I was like, oh, I never even thought of that because you end up dealing with, well, one track of guitars. But then again, just like you said, you need to have that in mind if you're gonna do a lot of automation because that is a cool thing when you can have them just like opening up on the chorus and it just, the it feels wider, and mm-hmm. all this
0: kind of stuff. Next one that we will point out here is one of my favorites. And this came to me not from Tom Lord Algae, but rather Marcel Jacob, who was the infamous bass player for Ingve's early days and a friend of mine and a friend of a very good friend of mine as well. That's how I met him. He loved distortion on his bass. Probably more than Tom loves it because his bass tone (laughs) was very distorted. However, Tom likes distortion on bass as well.
1: Yeah, certainly does, and I'm a fan too. Needless to say, this needs to fit into the type of song that it is. Sure. If you're doing like a soulful pop track, don't distort your bass. It's probably not gonna be good. However, adding a touch of distortion to the bass can just give it a little bit more snarl and make it have a little bit more oomph, I think. Now, Tom, in certain cases, is not very gentle with distortion <laughs> on his bass.
0: Neither was Marcel.
1: <laughs> right. But but in those cases, it works. Mm-hmm. So it's also one of those things that now, I mean, I, I grew up listening to a lot of metal. So distorted bass was not something that was like, oh, that's really weird. It can make something sound more powerful and it can fill out in a certain way. We need to be a little bit careful with a low end, I think of the bass and the below 100 sometimes Mm -hmm. when we're distorting it so that you might have split the
0: bass signal. I'm not sure that Tom ever really does that. Well, he does have a trick that he uses where if the bass is going by itself and it's got that distortion on it, he will automate a high cut filter to roll it off so that you don't hear all the (laughs) in his noisy, distorted bass when it's by itself.
1: When it's by itself, yeah. So if you have like a hanging bass note, let's say that it's a, a break or at the end of a song or something, not to pat myself too hard on the back, but that's something I've done before with guitars and things as well, where if you have a hanging chord or a hanging bass note, All that noise that you don't really hear in the track is obviously exposed. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to just do a volume automation with that would be to actually use a high-cut filter and automate that rather rapidly so that it comes down. And you don't notice that sort of high-end sizzle where it sounds like somebody's frying bacon in the background, you know? <laughs> and it's a good way. So you don't have to completely get rid of the distortion on the bass, but you get rid of all the ugliness that really pokes out at you when it's exposed, as you were. So mm-hmm. that, that's a cool trick. But he does another thing on bass as well, Tom, that, is, that you can tell us about when it comes to compression.
0: He uses a really low threshold of compression. It's about a 1 to 5 and maybe all of 10 dB, so it's not hitting super hard. I'm a little bit more heavy-handed in this range in that I might use a 2 to 1, not a Mm 1 to 5, and I might have it lop off some of the upper-end stuff before it hits the bus That is strictly for bass, where the bus on a bass for me will usually be four or six to one and a little bit more heavy handed to even it out. But that's me.
1: Again, it's like there's no right or wrong here. But I thought it was an interesting thing that he has like one to one and a half dB of compression, right? But but then getting a lot lower with a threshold to get. Again, whatever it needs, right? So, mm-hmm. another thing that can be really intimidating, I think, once you start learning a little bit about compression, is to apply heavy doses of it, right? <laughs> where it's like, oh no, I shouldn't be. Able. You and I frequently talk about vocals, where we're like, oh, I'm just tickling the the top end or whatever. Sure. Sometimes it it actually calls for that, and especially with bass and I think the low end, especially where it can be very hard to get that to sit right in the song and carry. Compressing a little bit more without squeezing the complete snot out of it where it just loses all life, that's a trick to try maybe. So I think that's an interesting one as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Next up is one that you really like, and this is from Chris Lord Algae, and it has to do with using various reverbs To create depth and space in a mix. Sounds like a recent episode we did. (laughs) A little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. He has a bunch of reverbs that are
1: his sort of go-to, that are always present in his mixes that he can use to varying degrees. These are not like, oh, you have to use these. He has 480L on a plate, usually for his vocals. He has a Sony DRE-2000. He's got a Bricosti an old Yamaha reverb, Rev1. Mm -hmm. He actually uses the H3000 in the dense room setting as a reverb, and also has like an AMS RMX 16 And he blends these in different ways. There's a lot to kind of dig into right there, but one trick that I watched him do, and I've tried this out myself, that this sounds really, really good on drums. Mm could be like an additional trick here, but one thing that he does when he sends drums to reverbs and things, he will generally send all the kit pieces, even the rooms, except the kick and top snare. Mm -hmm. The feeling there being that they are so prominent like that they can just get washed out and stuff if you're sending those to the reverb. If he uses additional samples to trigger as well, he might send the sample to the reverb, but never the mic kit. And I'm, I'm assuming that's because you get additional noise and low-end rumble from stuff you don't want there. You don't want that in your reverb as well. Right. The trick that he does, or the reverb that he uses on drums, is that he has the Sony DRE-2000. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the hardware box, like I don't know anybody besides <laughs> him that has one, it is available in the Verb Suite Classics from from Slate. It's a setting called Reverb D 1.2 seconds. And then he also uses a Ricasti, an M7. We've talked about the Sabbath Heaven mm-hmm. Pro reverb in that, but it's also available in the Verb Suite Classics. It's a setting called Marble Room. Mm. Both of these are set to a second. No pre-delay, obviously fully wet. And then sending all the pieces to these two buses and blending those in. Blend to taste, obviously, but things can get wet pretty quickly. As always, I use it for what it is that sounds appropriate and for you want to do. You can thank me later because it's <laughs> going to sound freaking awesome. Now, this is more for like a traditional kit, right? right? A traditional drum kit. In cases where you're Maybe you're more of a beat maker or something. Maybe this trick isn't gonna work that well for you. Maybe it will, I don't know, and you start your own subgenre. I, I guess. Using those two reverbs in conjunction sounds really, really cool. And just kind of blending those in. So let's say that you have like a crappy room mic or whatever, it's just not doing it, or you want bigger and I want more lush, I want it to sound like the 80s, you know? <laughs> Try that trick with the Sony DRE and the Bricasti on those two settings, and I think you'd be pleasantly surprised. I know I was. It sounds really, really cool. Sweet. I'll have to try it. Yeah. We have another bonus tip here, though. That was five. Let's call this six as a bonus tip. I thought of this because last week our guest, Charlie Clauser, mentioned that he does something kind of similar in his Logic template.
0: Something and similar to what? To Tom Lord Algee, what I'm going to have you explain here. Mm. Tom Lord Algy places all of his faders at zero. Anytime that he has to adjust levels on a particular channel strip, he does it within the plugin. He does not use the faders to do that.
1: Yeah, in the DAW. In is, the DAW right. itself, yeah. right. Right. Because he tends to use his SSL console, I think, still for tactile movement and stuff. To have, if he has to do a, a recall all the the faders in Pro Tools are set to zero. Yep. Because that way if he accidentally nudges something or where was that? Well, it was a zero. That's where it was. So everything is just adjusted in the console plugin in Pro Tools as well. And then I'm assuming he uses all this automation just on the board, right? Right. I got to thinking about that when when Charlie said last week, I'm on a first-name basis with Charlie. (laughs) 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 That's not true. That's a joke where he sets them at minus six for when he sends everything out. But you said something before we started recording here as well. So you do something kind of similar, actually. So you've kind of adopted this workflow.
0: To an extent, yes and no. In that regard, I had mentioned that there was another composer that I had talked to that does a lot of production music. And he had mentioned that he sets his faders to minus six as well. I had created some logic templates for production things where I did the same thing with setting faders to minus six. My current workflow is more like Tom Lord Algae's in Luna, where I start with all my faders at zero. I do all of my volume adjustments, initial volume adjustments within the plugin consoles that I'm using as emulations of whatever console I'm working on. In the course of doing various FX or volume rides that I need to do, I will then do those with automation on Luna's fader, whatever channel strip needs that movement. My thinking in terms of doing that comes to the forward motion of me eventually getting the SSL 360 setup with the UC1, the UF1, and the UF8 so that I can do – Tactile movements. The reasoning why Charlie would do his faders at minus six, if it is similar to this other composer that I am thinking of that talked about doing the same thing, it has everything to do with giving oneself room to bring things up a lot. Granted, pretty much every DAW, when you set the fader to its zero mark, you have. 12 dB of headroom to go up. I don't need that much room. Some people apparently do. Right, yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that's a
1: a common thing that when, certainly when we start, right, we start at at zero and then we just, oh, I want to hear more bass, I want to hear more 808, and then more, 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 and then all of a sudden our output fader is crimson, right? It's just blowing up. I'm curious too now, because I really don't know this. Where do you do your sort of gain staging then? Is that happening on
0: the channel in Luna then? No, it's when I do the outputs from all the writing, recording, and editing, and logic. I export everything at a minus 18 dB. That's where I get all my headroom from. So that's already taken care of It's already taken care of before it even hits the mix stage. And I understand that concept of if you don't do that and you're improperly gain staged before you hit the mix stage, you will run out of headroom at 12 dB if you're constantly oh, I need to hear more of this. And then everything, you get volume creep. I don't have volume creep because I start at a much lower level. Right. And generally speaking, I don't need to push 12 dB on anything to get it there. If I do, I might change the trim, but not a lot. Got it. Got it.
1: That's a pretty good trick or tip, even if you don't think of it in the way that Tom Lord Algae does and you have a giant SSL 4000G. Mm -hmm. If you find yourself, you're always running out of headroom and you're pushing faders up, It's just maybe just bring them down in your mix template or before you start going. See where it takes you because you can always turn things up. Yes. Right, But it's easier to to run out of space when you're mixing and you're like, oh, I I got nowhere else to go. And if you've done all the automation and stuff, it's a pain to kind of go through and kind of adjust all of that kind of stuff as well. So,
0: yeah. Speaking of pain, what kind of things have you found this week for Friday finds Chris ooh well I
1: discovered something this week that moog have another virtual instrument and it's called the Mariana mm. this promises to be another bass synth mm. built on the moog Legacy as you'd expect when Moog does something like that my Ears always perk up a little bit. Ooh, let's check this out. So <laughs> it's looking really, really interesting. I mean, Moog has such a legacy of, of everything they have from the, the Model D and, and onward, right? It's available as a plugin, And for if you're one of those guys that do like iOS stuff, so you want to have it on your iPad or I guess even on your iPhone, it piqued my interest. And I think it looks cool. So the Mariana from Moog is my
0: find for this Friday. And what have you discovered? I'm going with Natural Drums by D-A-A-C-I. I'm not sure how that should be pronounced. As you often say, say that 10 times fast. Right. (laughs) Natural Drums is in open beta. It is not free to join it, but you can join it. It's roughly $18 US. I'm not sure what that translates to pounds sterling. They are doing this drum plug-in that does naturalized on-the-fly drum feel change so that it's sound just like a real drummer. And it is a step sequencer of sorts for drums that apparently can train itself to be humanized feeling in drums.
1: Are these sample-based or are they synthesized? They must you know? be sample-based.
0: I have no idea. I it, I haven't joined the, the feel, beta, but I've read it about it. It's the feel to feel human using AI. Hmm.
1: So eventually you'll be able to have like a, a Jeff Picaro in a box. <laughs>
0: exactly. in a box, and it will automatically do fills and other flourishes on the fly just for you.
1: Oh, that's – both intriguing and really saddening at the same
0: time. <laughs> right. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to inside the and sign up for our mailing list. You'll need to be on our email list to be eligible for future giveaways, and we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of this amazing podcast. Send us an email at Goldstar G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R at inside the with the name Lord Algae. And you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have an awesome day.